Welcome back to another edition of the Red Reporter Podcast. Uh, we are coming to you on a wonderful, wonderful Wednesday evening. Uh, the Reds are fresh off a three-game sweep of the Houston Astros. The Cincinnati Reds are fresh off a three-game sweep of the Houston Astros. Um, not just any Astros, but they beat Justin Verlander. They faced Garrett Cole and somehow managed to find a way to beat the Astros in both of those games. So um, it's a good uh, good time to be uh, in Reds land, perhaps the best time all season, to be honest. Uh, they're 34 and 38, um, but they're riding a four-game win streak. And after the, the first couple games against the Texas Rangers over the weekend, um, didn't go quite as planned. They did pick up a big win on Sunday uh, and parlayed that into sweeping the Astros for their first series sweep of the season. Well, the Astros first losing series sweep of the season, I should say. So uh, with that in mind, uh, we've got Tony Wolf with me today. Tony, what's going on, buddy? What are you thinking about these Reds? Oh, I'm, I'm doing very well, uh, especially after after seeing the Reds uh, sweep the Astros uh, this afternoon. It, it's It's been a very long time since it felt like there was so much emotion behind uh, a, Reds, a Reds win as there was today. Uh, obviously, three straight one-run wins over maybe the best team in baseball uh, is is already pretty great. But the fact that the, the Reds have only had one other four-game win streak this season, and that came when they beat the Miami Marlins three times and then the Cardinals once. This this beating the Rangers once and the Astros three times has a little bit different feel. So that so uh, yeah, the the Reds. The Reds undoubtedly uh, feel good right now, and uh, so do I. So that's uh, it's all it's all good right now. Yeah, one hundred percent. Not just that, but they, you know, they they came home. It was a six game homestand, um, and got off the zero and two start. And it's like, what the hell? Like you guys, over the last few years, what the Reds have been is many many things, which is largely bad. But they've always at least been a half decent team at home. And when you've got a six game spurt against those two teams, you got to make hay at home. And to start out zero and two, that was probably the lowest point of the season for me. I think. I mean, with the one and eight start was obviously miserable, but you know, there's still infinite time to recover from that. Um, starting at a homestand zero and two to drop what eight games under five hundred uh, at this juncture of the season, um, the way this roster is constructed and everything else with so many pending free agents. Uh, and the writing on the wall of the Astros coming to town, they could have been, what, 11 games under 500 right now if they hadn't come out and taken all three of those games. Um, the fact that they responded as well as they did, I think, was a pretty uh, – hopefully down the road we can look back and say that was a pretty pivotal moment uh, for this particular Reds uh, of roster because uh, if things went wrong for three days in a row right here, uh, they're suddenly up against it in a way that uh, seems kind of unfathomable now that they won three in a row. Yeah, I mean, and especially just the uh, just what the Astros are, it, it really didn't even seem like uh, like something that was up in the air. You know, it, it wasn't something of well, well, maybe the Reds can take uh, two out of three here and, and and keep you know try to build a little bit, little bit of momentum. The Astros are monsters, and even without uh, Carlos Correa, uh, George Springer, you know, the, some of the guys that they were missing for this series 
the Astros still just are pose such a formidable force. They're you know arguably the best team in like, like I said, you know arguably the best team in baseball. Uh, the Dodgers and Yankees being up there somewhere as well. Uh, and they had you know it's not like the Reds got a break as far as the pitching pitchers they were facing. Like you said, you know Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, uh, Wade Miley has been very good for them. Uh, it's you know the Reds didn't. It, it felt somewhat inevitable that the Reds were going to lose at least two, maybe all three games of this series, especially after they lost two out of three to a Rangers to the Rangers. Uh, and so the fact that they were able to pull this off, this is the first uh, series the Reds have won since May 24th to May 26th, uh, which was almost like four weeks ago. <laughs> fittingly, yeah. uh, fittingly, that series they won was against the Chicago Cubs, who are another very good team who has a very – uh, you know, dangerous build going towards uh, the postseason. So uh, it's very odd what the Reds <laughs> just did over the last three days, but something that they absolutely – it was absolutely necessary to, to for them to even keep a little bit of uh, suspense alive in their season because, yeah, if they if they come out of this series, what is it, thir- uh, 31 and 41, uh, yeah, they're, they're done. That's it. That's the whole – the whole year is uh, pretty much – gone and you're looking down the barrel of four games against the Brewers, uh, two against the Angels, three against the Cavs, four more against the Brewers, uh, ten games under five hundred in the middle of June. So it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been a great uh feel for this team. So uh very, very important uh sweep today. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that I, I just kind of thinking about it and talking out loud while doing so, um the nature of how they won today specifically, but also throughout the course of the series is also something I think it's pretty important because, you know, you mentioned Wade Miley and Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole, uh, just powerhouse pitchers who have been good for years. And Miley at least has been very, very good since the beginning of last year. Had to to, to Derek Johnson a little bit on that one also. Um, But you look at those starting pitching matchups and it was Luis Castillo. It was Sonny Gray. It was Tyler Malley. Um, that's the core of the Reds' rotation for the future, too. You know, as good as Tanner Rourke has been this year, he's 32 and a pending free agent. Uh, even Anthony DiScofani is a free agent after next year. Uh, you look up at those three starters, and all of whom have, you know, have shown flashes of absolute brilliance at times. Mally start last year, uh, at times this year, including today. Uh, and then obviously Luis Castillo and Sonny Gray speak for themselves with their, their overall records. But given how much team control the Reds have over those three guys – that's the rotation that they have built during this rebuild. That's the core of that rotation. Um, and to see the three of those guys go head-to-head with the caliber pitchers and the caliber lineup they were up against, even with those injuries that you mentioned as well, um, I, I think that was pretty telling too because it wasn't like the Reds were leaning on guys that are set to be free agents uh, in this series to get those wins. And then today even, uh, you know, you look up and, and, and the comeback win in the ninth, who was it? It was Jose Peraza. It was Nick Senzel. It was Jesse Winker, which in theory – those are three key cogs for the Reds for the next four, five, six years. Um, and to see them come through in that way against a team of this caliber, uh, I think was super special because I feel like it's kind of a growing moment almost. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, that's not something that you can statistically categorize, I don't think. But I do think it is one of those things that players will always kind of file away. Uh, and I would be shocked 10 years from now, you talk about this particular series and this particular game uh, to some of those guys involved uh, and they wouldn't remember it because I feel like it was that kind of pivotal uh, to a franchise in the Reds that has been 
beaten up by good teams for a long time now. Yeah, and uh, I, 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 I'm sorry. I have to uh, make one correction. It was Anthony Anthony Viscofani that went up against Justin Verlander, not Sonny Gray. Yeah, uh, yes, right, right. It was Sonny, uh, Sonny against the Rangers on the weekend, right? Yes, this, yeah. Sonny Gray was the one who started in the in the very first game of the of the what is now a four game win streak. But I mean, even with that, you know, Anthony Viscofani and Tyler Malley, who pitched uh, today on Wednesday, uh, those two have been the most. Uh, most unpredictable, I guess I'll say, uh, starters in the Reds rotation right now. You know, so Luis Castillo has has been dominant for the most part. You know, he's had some walk uh, trebles, but uh, he's been very, very good. Uh, he's having the best season of his career. It's already worth something like three and a half wins on baseball reference. Uh, then Sonny Gray has had a great year. Tanner Roark has had a great year. Anthony DiSclefani and, Tanner, and uh, Tyler Malley, they're not the two Red starters that you would – choose to go up against Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. Uh, but Anthony Diascalfani went out and threw five and a third one-run innings. It's his third start in June, uh, and he's given up one run in all of them. Uh, Tyler Malley has had a bumpy, bumpy road of late. Uh, he came out today and was lights out. You know, he made one, he made one questionable pitch to Michael Brantley that ended up getting turned into the only two runs that the Astros scored uh, during the afternoon. But other than that, he was great. You know, the Reds only gave up seven runs to the Astros in this entire three-game series. And that just, you know, we've, we've talked so much about how improved the Reds' pitching staff is and how uh, how impressed we've been with that turnaround. But to, for, for them to... Hold the Astros, who are, you know, along with the Dodgers and the Yankees, pretty much the pinnacle of offensive excellence right now in baseball. For them to hold the Astros to seven runs in three games without using, you know, maybe their best, uh, their best three starters, and even resorting to some unconventional bullpen usage with uh, Michael Lorenzen saving two games instead of Rosella Iglesias being that uh, hammer at the end of the game, that's I, that just says so much about where this team, where this pitching staff is, and just the level that they are able to uh, compete at at this stage of the year. And that's that's even with the offense going through the fits and starts it, it's gone through this year, that's really exciting. Yeah, and that's that's another uh, topic that I totally wanted to, to brush on as well. Um David Bell turning to Rysel Iglesias as his eighth inning guy. Um, and I say eighth inning guy as if that's what his role is. Um, it's a leverage role. And that's what he, uh, in theory, was supposed to be signed to do when they renegotiated his contract and guaranteed him the three years and, what, $24 million, um, mm-hmm. to eliminate the arbitration process this past winter uh, because the arbitration process historically rewards stats like saves. And uh, the writing on the wall from the Reds doing that was saying, hey – you're our best pitcher. We want to sign you to this deal, but you might not just be getting three outs in the ninth inning if that's not when you're needed most. Um, what are your thoughts on him, uh, David Bell, turning to uh, Michael Lorenzen uh, after Rysel Iglesias pitched uh, what the last two outs of the eighth and the first of the ninth two games ago and got Alex Bregman to pop out uh, and then got pulled. Uh, and then yesterday also uh, giving Michael Lorenzen uh, the chance to get the save in the, the ninth inning too. Um, 
what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's something that's controversial or do you think it's something that uh, they basically spelled out in the front of the season and are just now getting around to doing? Yeah, it's it's weird. You know, Rysel Iglesias, with his, with his background, uh, he was already uh, – he was a starter when, when he first came up. So with, with him transitioning to the bullpen uh, when he did, we – I think we always kind of hoped that he would be a little bit more of a I, swingman is the wrong word, uh, maybe, but, but not necessarily the closer, not necessarily the ninth, ninth inning guy, but what we maybe what we saw, uh, what we've seen out of like Andrew Miller and Josh Hader and Brad Hand, some of those guys where he's not someone you necessarily bring in to just close the game, but he's somebody that you bring in when you've got a tough situation. Uh, you know, two guys on, two outs, that sort of thing, where you, you've you got to have – there's just no excuse not to have your best arm throwing in that moment. And and someone, someone who can go get you, you know, if, if your starter's done in the sixth, but it's a really important game and it's, a, you know, it's one or two runs difference, you've got Iglesias for five outs or six outs, something like that, and – uh, so, so that's that part of it is encouraging. We've seen him used like that a little bit in the past, but not not a whole lot. Uh, this series was very interesting, and from the standpoint that they they really seem to use him, you know, and almost you know, almost intentionally as as in a, in a way that's like you're not you're not going to close this game. We, you are going to you. We need you for these outs right now. We have guys for the next, uh, you know, the next three outs. Uh, I, two, in Tuesday's game, uh, he he was brought in to pitch for Amir Garrett uh, with, I believe, uh, one one guy on. Yeah, Mike, Michael uh, Brantley was on first, and he got uh, Yuli Gurriel and Robinson Trinos, who are two of the most hot bats in the Houston lineup. Um, right. And then the day before, he got Alex Bregman as his final out. So he's facing the guys that – you would want him to face. And then I'm just looking at the gameplay last night and not that Michael Lorenzen wasn't electric in the ninth inning, but he was getting Tyler White, Tony Kemp and Josh Reddick. So he was getting two guys who were largely backups uh, playing because of Springer and, and Altuve's injuries uh, to get that save in the ninth inning. So not to diminish what, what Lorenzen did or how well he looked in that particular role. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned also, like it's a leverage thing. You're getting the best bats in the opposing lineup out the last time that you want them to come up to the plate. Uh, and that's certainly what it seemed like he was tasked with doing, and he did it. Right, and and uh, even in the in Tuesday's game, uh, the pitcher spot was due up third in the next inning. You know, they, they didn't uh, – it, it never really seemed like and something where the intention was, oh, Iglesias is going to get the next five outs. You know, they, they brought him in to get – the two outs where they really needed them the most in the eighth inning. And then they brought in Josh Van Meter to pinch hit for him. And uh, Lorenzen was able to come in the ninth inning. And uh, I think Monday uh, Iglesias was just, he just wasn't that sharp. He got the outs he needed to, but he was, he was a little bit, he was a little bit uh, wild. You know, he wasn't throwing, uh, throwing as many strikes as you would have liked them like to see him uh, throw. So they took him out. They brought in Lorenzen. He finished the game. So uh, that's I you know I don't necessarily know that I want to see Michael Lorenzen as the ninth inning guy going forward. Even though Michael Lorenzen's had a he's had a very good year. He's got three hundred five ERA. 
Uh, he's striking out a lot more guys. He's walking fewer guys. He's, he's had a very good year as a, uh, as a reliever, but uh, just, just just the entire idea of Rysel Iglesias maybe being uh, a multi-inning slash just floating uh, reliever where he's just he's used where you need him. He's used where you know that these outs are the most important outs you're going to get in the game. Uh, he's the be- he, when you when he, when it comes down to it, when when Rossell Iglesias has his best stuff when he's throwing the way we've all seen him throw in the very recent past he's the maybe the best pitcher on the team if not you know behind Luis Castillo and and like Sonny Gray you know those are the guys that ha- even have a shot of being better yes like stuff 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 wise yeah he there's maybe Castillo is the only one who's got better stuff and. Um, and let's be honest, like if you look over the past three, four, five years of Major League Baseball, uh, uh, Andrew Miller hasn't been a closer, but he's, you know, getting paid 12 to $15 million a year because he's that good. Uh, David Robertson's been the same way. Dylan Batances has been the same way. Um, who else? Wade Davis, before he landed the, the huge contract to be the, the Rockies closer, was that guy. He was the high leverage former starter who could get you 40 pitches and seven outs if you needed him to mid middle of the game. Um, I think that's kind of what, I mean, ideally that's what you want Iglesias to be. And on paper, that's kind of what David Bell and Dick Williams hinted at that he was going to be when he signed like the concrete extension this winter. We just hadn't seen him used in that role yet this year. Uh, I think we finally saw that and it's, it's, Interesting. It's certainly certainly interesting, especially with uh, the looming trade deadline coming up. Because you saw that initially, and you're like, "Wait, what are they doing? Like, are they changing roles? Are they seeing out if they've got uh, a ready made replacement closer on the roster?" All that stuff kind of went through your head. But when you kind of walk it back and think about it, uh, that's really how the bullpen was supposed to be set up. Um, heck, even up in Milwaukee with Derek Johnson the last couple of years, uh, Josh Hader hasn't been the closer. He's been that get the best guys out guy. And then they had Corey Knievel before he got hurt to, to kind of wipe up the ninth inning. So uh, I, I think it's what, that's what that is. And if it is, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that move because I think that's the best thing for the long-term health of this uh, bullpen. And uh, it was cool to see. It was a little abrupt, but, uh, but definitely cool to see, and it certainly worked out. So Well, and this bullpen is finally one where you feel comfortable saying, you know, if, if Rysel Iglesias gets these, gets through this tough spot we have in the 7th or 8th inning, we've got guys we can trust in the 8th or ninth. You know, for, for the first time in, in years, the Reds have a really good bullpen. Uh, as of right now, I think they're, they're second in uh, the majors, and – uh, F and Fangraphs war uh, by their bullpen. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about Iglesias and Mike Lorenzen, but uh, Amir Garrett's had a fantastic year. Jared Hughes, even though he's he hasn't been as sharp as he was last year, he's still been pretty solid. David Hernandez has been a pretty underrated part of the bullpen. Robert Stevenson has had great flashes. Matt Bowman just threw two scoreless innings today. Two, two, two huge innings, you know. I yeah. mean, that, that, that bought the Reds the win right there. Yeah, so, so you, you see – you know, if Iglesias is has to come in in the eighth inning and, and scrub up a couple of outs, the Reds are finally in this position where they you can see David Bell turning to the bullpen and saying, okay, I've got Amir Garrett, who has been absolutely fantastic this year. I've still got Michael Lorenzen, who's having a, a career-best year out of the bullpen. I've got David Hernandez, who I know 
can miss bats and, and, and do, do very well for us. So that's another really important uh, aspect of all of this is, is just how, how deep uh, of a, how, how deep the Reds uh, bullpen arms are right now compared to the last several years. Yeah, 100%. And um, for a little bit of a segue here, um, pretty much the only two bullpen arms that haven't performed well at all this year uh, are a pair of lefties. Um, one is now currently on the the DL, whether it's the Phantom DL or the real DL, uh, and Wandy Peralta. And the other is Zach Duke, who also hit the – was it the real DL or maybe the Phantom DL earlier in the season also? Um uh, we've got uh, a, a couple questions. I reached out to our Twitter followers um, uh, to see what they had to uh, to ask about earlier today. And uh, one of the specific questions was, what do the Reds do when Alex Wood gets healthy? Um, this is from our good friend uh, and former Red Reporter writer, Uncle Weez. Weez, how you doing, buddy? Um, the question for me, I guess, is Alex Wood's in a pretty precarious situation in terms of uh, his future, which is obviously a big, big thing and, uh, you know, financial mandate that he, he uh, uh, goes through the next couple months and couple weeks uh, in a proper way because he's 28 years old and trying to set himself and his family up for their future. Uh, he's been a starter primarily for the last couple seasons and been a very, very good one. Um, but he also has a lot of experience as a reliever. And here we are on June 19th and he's still just throwing bullpens and live BPs, which he did earlier today or earlier this week uh, and seems set to go out on a rehab stint soon. Um, do you think it's worthwhile for the Reds to give him that much more time to stretch out as a starter, which means he might get maybe one, maybe two starts in before the July 31st trade deadline, or do they work him as a reliever and try to get him back to the big leagues as quickly as possible, perhaps as that second lefty in the bullpen to Amir Garrett and taking the place of a guy like Zach Duke or Wandy Peralta who hasn't performed well this year? Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I, I, It's just one of those things where if, if the Reds – you want to use Alex Wood as a starter. That's what they traded him for, or that's what they traded for him uh, for. They 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 brought him in to be a left-handed uh, starter in, in their rotation, which they do not currently have. So so letting go of that is going to be, I, I think, a little bit tough. Uh, however, you know he's performed very, like, as you said, he's performed very well as a reliever in, in, over the course of his career and. Uh, the Reds are in pretty pretty big need of a left-handed reliever. Uh, you know, as, as you know, outside of Amir Garrett, they really haven't had someone that they can uh, count on uh, uh, throwing from the left side coming out of their bullpen. They've brought Cody Reed up and down all year, so uh, I, I still I still would like to see. I think I was, I would still like to see Alex Wood. Uh, be brought back as a starter and, and try to stretch him out. Try to try to work him in that way uh, because of the fact that you know you you just you one that's what you brought him in for, and, and also you just never know what the health of your rotation is going to look like day to day. Right now, they've had they've they so far they've had very good luck. Uh, with, with the arms, I hear the knocking on wood. Uh, <laughs> had very good luck 
with their arms, I better do that as well. Uh, with with the arms out of their starting rotation, but you know, as we know, just as as Reds fans and as baseball fans, that can change any minute practically. So, uh, whenever that does, I think you you would like to have a guy like Alex Wood be built up, be be ready to to join the rotation uh, if need be. But, but yeah, I I think the it is nice to see the Reds in a position where you have this veteran. Uh, who's thrown a lot of important innings for some very successful uh, clubs who, when he joins you, hopefully in the next month or so, uh, he's you can basically plug him in wherever you see fit. You know, if, if he ends up uh, filling the role of, uh, of Tyler Malley or, or Anthony Discofani, if they start to trail off again in the next couple weeks, Great if if he joins the bullpen as something of a two inning reliever, then that's also a a, a very positive thing. You know, it, it's we talked about this a little bit last week. It's 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 a very odd situation that the Reds are going to have when Alex Wood comes back, and and there's just so much that seems up in the air right now uh, in terms of which which roles guys have and what needs the the team is going to have and what where they're going to be in as far as the season goes because again you know if they if they bottom out again and they lose six of the next eight games now they're in pretty much the position they were heading into the third game of the rangers series except now it's you know another week and a half from now and and they've lost important games to division rivals and and they're more geared towards selling whereas if they beat the brewers three out of four games and the cubs two out of three games now you might be looking at a team that is only three four games out of the division race uh 10 days from now and and they have to think a little bit more seriously about how best to build this team to succeed this season so it's a very it's a very odd question yeah uh and and moving kind of uh, i don't want to say moving on because they're kind of overlapping questions but uh from at ronson 92 ronnie swingo asks of the expiring one-year contracts who should the reds prioritize re-signing this offseason and who should they trade slash let walk um that kind of jumps into what i was going to mention which is and and i always come back to this and it's kind of Shocking to me at this point in my life where I look back and realize this is 15 years ago. Um, But on that 2004 Boston Red Sox run to their first World Series championship in a millennia, uh, they traded their best player midseason. They traded Nomar Garciaparra midseason that year uh, and went on to win the World Series championship. And um, obviously I'm not trying to compare where the current Reds are to that team and not suggesting the Reds are going to win the World Series this year. But I legitimately think that the idea of trying to win more games than they lose this year, even if it means holding players, paying salary, uh, and finishing 83 and 79 and not making the playoffs, I think they can do that and still be sellers at this trade deadline. Um, And I think that's a concept that a lot of people – think is binary where you're either selling and you lose or you're keeping everybody and you win or you're you have to trade four people and win the way this reds roster is constructed and the way that their uh injured list is currently populated right now um when scooter Jeanette and alex would come back they're two guys that 
obviously deserve spots on the 25-man roster. And arguably, you know, heck, what, three months ago, you could have, and you probably would have heard it from a lot of people out there that said Alex Wood should have been the opening day starter and Scooter Jeanette was the best hitter on the Reds. Uh, bringing those two guys back and making sure they get regular time, whether it's Alex Wood in the rotation or whether it's Scooter Jeanette going into second base and playing every single day or five out of six, uh, you add those guys to that roster, somebody's got to sit then. And if they're going to sit, they're not getting value for the team or whatever. They can trade players and backfill with those guys and in theory be just as good, if not better, if things go absolutely perfectly down the stretch. And so when it, when you talk about players who are one-year rentals uh, and who they should prioritize keeping in or trading, uh, I really think it depends on how soon both of those guys get back and in what role you want them in. Because uh, if Scooter's taking over second base, that's putting Derek Dietrich, who's been the best hitter on the Reds, as your non-second baseman all of a sudden. And that means what? Either you're benching him or you're benching Jesse Winker or Yasiel Puig to get him in the lineup in the corner outfield spots. Uh, so maybe if Scooter comes back and looks like he's Scooter, maybe Yasiel Puig becomes the guy you want to target to trade and you run a Derek Dietrich, Philip Irvin, a Derek Dietrich, uh, Jose Peraza platoon in left field and let Jesse Winker get most of the at-bats in right field. Um, what are your thoughts on that and – how many moving parts there are because that same outfield argument I just mentioned when Alex Wood gets back, if they stretch him out as a starter, you could trade Tanner Roark backfill with Alex Wood and maybe be even better for the second half of the season than the Reds have been in the first half. Yeah. It, it, I definitely, I'm on board with the notion that the Reds could trade some of their uh, most expendable trade pieces and, and not necessarily uh, be worse off by more than a game uh, going forward. You know, it's it's very interesting to look at this team versus years past where if, if there, you knew if the Reds traded, say, uh, Todd Frazier uh, or Jay Bruce at the All-Star break, you were going to get a worse player, probably a significantly worse player, to fill their spot for the remainder of the season. And that's just that's not the case this year. Uh, you know, Yasiel Puig, like we've we've talked about on this podcast before, he's he's had a pretty strong last couple of weeks, but he's still really underperformed this year. And uh, you know, even the guys who haven't underperformed, guys like uh, Tanner Roark, who we've also mentioned on this on this podcast. You know, if you if you replace Tanner Roark with Alex Wood. And the uh, and the rotation, do you get a meaningful drop off uh, from from there? And uh, so, so I, I'm certainly uh, I, I certainly uh, agree with the notion that this team could sell uh, in July and and still make something of a push. It just depends on which it, it, it again. It all comes back to what what this team what what they're getting back in value. You know, if right. uh, I, I, I can't that there's Yasiel Puig is still worth something. If if nothing else, uh, then for the the draft pick that he might be worth at the end of the season, uh, as when, once you extend him a qualifying offer and uh, you know what what he 
just the mystery of him. You know, even if he has uh, sub 700 OPS in July, uh, he's still worth something because you just don't know when he's going to turn it on and catch fire the rest of the way. And so, and, and he's got a pretty good background of being a very good playoff performer as well. So yes. even if, a, you know, the back of his baseball card this year doesn't look as good as previous years, he's a notoriously slow starter, and he's also a guy who has always shown up in the playoffs. So I feel like even if he doesn't go on a, a freakish tear between now and the end of June or July, uh, somebody would still want him. How much they're going to give you for him is, is the question, but somebody's going to want Yasiel Puig if you try to trade him. Yes, and uh, you know, as far as as far as which guys you keep, you know, or even you know, try to sign after the year, uh, after the year ends, I, I I would be, I think I would be surprised to see the Reds sign any of these guys uh, to another contract after the season ends. You know, maybe they, I I don't know that I would be heartbroken to see them sign, say, Tanner Roark to a three year deal. After the season, if he finishes the year with a 3.3 FIP, uh, then yeah, he's probably yeah. <laughs> he's been very he's been very good this year. He's he's eaten a lot of innings throughout his career. Uh, if the Reds get him to agree to a you know three or four year contract that's within their price range, then great. You know if they want to bring back Jared Hughes or David Hernandez on a one or, on another one or two year deal, then then great. But. Uh, it, it, it would. I. I'd, I think I would be a little bit surprised to see the Reds be able to bring any of, the, any of these guys back as uh, as as far as just holding onto them for the for with the hope that you are are able to sign them long term. Right. I think so much of this, um, and I kind of overlook it also. But uh, what what we see early when Scooter Jeanette returns. Uh, I think is going to play a very big role in all of this because um, he's the one big guy who's a free agent at the end of the year who's been a Cincinnati Red for a couple of years and has been um, a big story in town and is obviously a local kid. Um, how quickly he shows that either he's got it back immediately or doesn't look at all like himself, I think it's going to help really dictate and drive a lot of this because I think the injury pretty much cemented that he's not getting traded at the July 31st trade deadline. Um, which means what he's got, he's going to end up having, uh, 80 games, 85, 90 games to be able to show whether or not he's somebody the Reds want to keep long term. Um, and if he looks the part, then that kind of helps a lot of the dominoes fall much like, you know, three months ago, we said, Hey, if Nick Senzel can't play center field, that really changes the alignment of how everything else shakes out. But he's shown so far, he doesn't just look like he's going to be a decent center fielder this year, but that's somebody you can roll out there for the next five, six, seven years, and he's just going to get better. Uh, that solves that question. So I think what you see from Scooter for the rest of this season is really going to help determine that because um, despite the fact you haven't really heard publicly any – real rumblings that the Reds want to sign him long-term. I think there are a lot of people in the front office and in ownership that want to sign him long-term. And if that's the case, then you look up at what this roster would look like after this year. If you keep him and trade or let everybody else walk, 
Um, you've got four rotation spots locked down and Luis Castillo, Sonny Gray, and uh, Disco and Tyler Malley. You've got Lucas Sims at AAA. You've got Tony Santillan on the cusp of coming up. Um, and then you look at position player-wise, and you've got Winker and Senzel at two of the corner outfield spots. You've got Eugenio Suarez at third, Vado at first, Barnard Casale at catcher. You tie up Scooter at second base, and suddenly you've got Jose Peraza. Is he the future shortstop? Is Can he be as good uh, as he was last year? Is that something that he's still got in him despite the fact that he struggled this year? And then you've got right field. Um, and at that point, it's like, okay, well, maybe Jesse Winker plays right field. And in left field, you've got maybe Derek Dietrich for next year because he's got a year of team control left. you got Philip Irvin. you got Taylor Trammell on the cusp also. Um, you start looking at how those dominoes shake out and fall out. Uh, I think to me, the one person, and, and Tanner Roark's a good one, I think, is if you can, like you said, if you can get him for three years and $36 million or whatever, that's a, that's a contract you sign. Um, for me, it's Jose Iglesias because I think he's the one guy who's what? He's still 29 years old. Yeah. Shortstop's the one spot where it's still kind of up in the air. And, uh, you know, obviously, Peraza, if you got the Peraza of 2018 this year and had four more years left of him, you wouldn't. But you've not seen that from Jose Peraza this year. And he does still, to me, kind of profile as that guy who you can get. 450, 500 plate appearances a year from, but play him everywhere. Play him at second, play him at third if you need to, play him at left and center field sometimes. Maybe Jose Iglesias is the guy that obviously you're not going to expect him to hit as well as he's hit this year, but that glove is a primo defensive shortstop glove. Um, I think if anybody's going to get signed, I, I think he's the one that I would go to and say, how much do you want to be here? How long is it going to take? And really try to hammer out that deal because I think he's the kind of player that obviously has fit in very well from the get-go with the Reds and could be a very good asset for the next two, three years too. Yeah, Jose Jose Iglesias is the other one I was kind of thinking of. Man, I just feel I feel so I feel so bad for Jose Iglesias and Scooter Jeanette just because they're they with the state of the free agent market the way that it is they're just they're guys that I know aren't going to get paid super well in free agency, which, you know, as, as someone who, who uh, cheers for the Reds, it, I want them to get good players uh, and I want them to find bargains where they can and, you know, all of that. But also it just, it's a little bit, it's a bit of a bummer just as a baseball fan and as someone who knows these guys are, are people and uh, they're they they should be paid what they're worth. It, it's kind of it's a little bit of a bummer to see you know a guy like Jose Iglesias who's been worth uh, something like close to nine WAR over the past uh, five seasons get a minor league deal this past year and he's he's probably you know if if Jose Iglesias would 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 uh, if he would test the free agent waters this year. I don't know that he gets anything other than a minor league deal again if he goes out and, and tries and tests the market a little bit. And and I don't even know, you know, Scooter Jeanette made a little bit of noise this past offseason about how he, or it might have even been during the season last year where he was a little bit put off by the fact that the Reds didn't try to extend him and, you know, voiced his desire to stay in Cincinnati uh, there, those are guys that, you know, Skewer Jeanette's been a very valuable offensive player 
who hasn't hasn't been a liability to a liability defensively. You know, he's been very good. Uh, he's been a very good player for the Reds. It's worth like four wins last year, and and I don't see Scooter Jeanette getting a big payday either. So you know, I I almost again I'm I'm conflicted with with these with these two players that you know could in theory build the next you know few years of the Reds middle infield uh, as far as wanting to see the Reds hold on to them because I like them and and I think that they're good players and I, I believe that they're going to uh, produce well for them uh, and also kind of wishing that they would price themselves out of the Reds market a little bit or at least out of the red where, where the Reds market has uh, lain in recent past where, you know, Scooter Jeanette goes out and finds himself some forty-five, fifty million dollar deal with, with somebody and Jose Iglesias actually gets to sign some kind of, you know, three year thirty million dollar deal with some team. Because he's very good. You know, these guys are are good at playing baseball and they're worth uh, more money than than they're probably going to get in the next few years. So I'm 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 very I'm very interested in the free agency cases that uh, lie ahead of them. And I, I know that I've sort of just dovetailed into a whole other conversation <laughs> on labor and uh, the market and, and baseball free agency as we know it. But I just, I can't help but think of anything else when it comes to guys like this that I know, uh, you know, five, six, seven years ago would have gotten just much, much yeah, different agency than they will this year. I was going to say, like, the, the moment you started talking about Iglesias and Scooter together, uh, Brandon Phillips was almost like the perfect blend of them. You know, he had the flair and the excellent glove defensively, wasn't nearly as good offensively as Scooter's been the last couple of years. And the Reds signed him for, what, five years and $72 million right mm-hmm. before he hit free agency? Yeah. Like, uh, that that's a contract that you just aren't going to see anymore. And so – uh, a massive renegotiation of the CBA. Um, yeah, it's it's. I, I don't envy the position of those guys one bit, especially with Scooter coming off injury. Um, it's one of those things where I look up and say, one hundred percent that part of the reason why Scooter and Jose Iglesias and Derek Dietrich stand out so well in all of our minds and the fans' minds is that all three of them got brought in for nothing. Like Dietrich got non-tendered by the worst team in, in baseball. <laughs> like yeah. how much how much of a how much of a slap to the and he's gonna he's turning thirty this year. Uh, like you're turning thirty, and the worst franchise in baseball said you're not good enough for a contract. Like that's a wow, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, the Detroit Tigers basically did the same thing with Jose Iglesias. They let him go, and then signed Jordy Mercer for five million dollars to replace him. Like. That really, <laughs> you know, um, that that players like that are that expendable, and that the Reds have found homes for them. I think it, it certainly makes them stand out more so in the fans' mind. But uh, yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent. It's like, you know, the last couple of seasons we talked so much about trading high on Scooter and finding the next Scooter Jeanette. Well, they they did. They found that in Derek Dietrich, and it cost them what two million bucks, and they've got the control over him for next year. That's a lot more palatable than thinking paying Scooter four years and fifty six million dollars, you know. Um, and so I agree with you on that point because there's certainly the fan aspect where you want them to keep their best players, but then there's also the the, the rational pro, uh, uh, thought process that says 
hey, if you keep all the best players, you either have to have a $2 million payroll or you got to trade some of them. And that's where that all comes in. Because if you don't get anything for Scooter and you keep him to the end of the year and let him walk, same with Iglesias and let him walk too. Uh, is Jose Peraza at shortstop and Derek Dukrix at second base and whoever the hell you find for the other corner outfield spot next year, um, is that good enough? You know, Or are you banking on the Reds' ability to find some more bargain basement guys uh, that pan out the way that those three have as opposed to guys like, I don't know, um, Daniel Descalso or Ian Kinsler who were also bargain basement guys and haven't really performed at all this year. Uh, Cause that's the risk you run by trying to save money in those spots. And uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, the Reds are certainly, certainly in a seller's market with a lot of options to sell, but they haven't played their hands with any of them because they could trade one guy and that will reveal their strategy, but it doesn't give up their strategy before they have to trade them because you trade Tanner Rourke, you got Alex Wood to backfill. You trade Yasiel Puig, you insert Scooter, move Dietrich to the outfield. They've got so many moving parts uh, that it's uh, it's one of those things that um, it's almost hard to even write about because you've got to write a manifesto on their thought process uh, to even be able to pull it off because you know they're going to trade somebody. All these all these players are too good to not be regulars. It just you don't know which one. They're going to wait for the best offer, and if they get something that pulls them over they can adjust accordingly. And I, I guess you, you would like them to be 38 and 34 while you consider that, because then you also bring in the idea of trading four guys at the deadline, which is something we'll get to in the next couple of weeks on the Red Reporter podcast. Um, but for now, they've got juggling ability, and that's kind of an interesting position to be in because it certainly is not what they've been in the last couple of years while trying to trade guys. Yeah, and uh... – I, I would I would certainly it, it will be a, a much more fun conversation to have uh, in in three weeks say if the Reds are within a few games of the world and we're discussing the viability of, of them trading for Matt Boyd uh, then then, uh, then it will be if we're discussing which uh, which prospect they might be able to get for uh, for Tanner Roark that there's there's definitely a side of that that I would rather be on and uh, I guess it's just it's just up to the baseball team to win the games that are necessary for them to uh, to make that conversation happen. Yeah, for sure. You know, I honestly wouldn't be surprised to see the Reds trade Tanner Roark, to see them trade Yasiel Pui, but then to also go out and make a deal like the Pirates did last year for Chris Archer, which was a trade that wasn't for 2018. It was for 2019. You know, uh, go out and get a guy that – uh, some other team has put on the market that's a seller and in a position similar to where the Reds were the last three seasons and be opportunistic with it, you know, um, and, and be better or as good for this year, but then also better positioned for the future too. And I think that's something that um, they've got the ability to do now without other teams having seen their hand, so to speak, because there are so many moving parts to what the Reds could do right now that uh, I guarantee you whichever first move they make, no other team in baseball is going to be able to pinpoint that that's the one that they saw coming because it could be any one of 12 different players. And that's, uh, I guess that's a good position to be in because you've not revealed yourself beforehand. And that in theory means you've got leverage and hopefully that's something the Reds can use to not just continue to make a 2019 season, a better and more fun one than they've had in previous seasons, but also still continue to build for the years beyond this because I, I keep mentioning it, uh, but this record payroll the Reds have for this particular season, um, 
if they don't do anything and just let all the free agents walk, they're going to shed 63 to $65 million of payroll, which means they've got the flexibility for 2019 or 2020 and beyond of any team. They've, they've got a very enviable position because they've got a great young core and in theory is up, up to $80 million they could spend uh, this off season for 2020 payroll. Um, and that's a cool spot to be in. But that said, it does mean the, uh, the front office is going to have to be very, very active and very diligent and not miss an opportunity uh, because that's what this kind of scenario and this kind of roster is, is presenting themselves with every opportunity, but you got to be ready to, to capitalize on it when the, when the, the right spot presents itself. So, well, cool. Uh, well, with that, how about maybe we wrap this one up? Um, it's been a, it's been a, I guess a good positive week in Reds baseball, despite the fact that the Cleveland series could have gotten a little bit better. Texas was kind of a wash, uh, but finishing the way they did off the Astros was, was really, really cool. And seeing guys like Joey Votto and, and Yasiel Puig and Jesse Winker as well, uh, start to get hot again. Uh, hopefully this time a week from now, we've got some more good news from the Cincinnati Reds front. Cause it seems like this team maybe just maybe might be starting to round into form a little bit. Yeah, man. I like being, I like being in a good mood when I, uh, when I go into those podcasts. So uh, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> for sure. Well, all right. Well for Tony, I'm Wick. You can find us, uh, at Red Reporter on Twitter. You can find us at redreporter.com. Uh, uh, you can find us on Facebook at Red Reporter Fans, and you can find Tony's work at Fangrass.com now as well. Check him out. He's got a couple good articles up already, and I look for nothing but more of those to come up throughout the course of the summer. But, uh, yeah, tune in. Check us out. Read us. Thanks for subscribing and listening, and uh, we will catch up with you all at some point next week.